Hey up friends, how's it going? My name's Matt Bart, you're listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Welcome, thanks for tuning into this episode, I hope you enjoy it. Now I know I've been saying this a lot recently, but my God, it is nice to be doing episodes in person again, although at the time of uh, speaking, it does appear that those days might be numbered, but fingers crossed. Anyway, Zoom or Zencaster in my case is all fine, but looking sideways, diodes will know that pre-COVID, I was pretty hardline about doing them in person. You know, there were pros and cons to both. Zoom means I can record great conversations like my chat with Cairo Foster and Christina Cook, for example. But then there are conversations I had virtually which are brilliant, but I just know would have been better in person. I'm thinking in particular of the Danny Kiwi Mai episode, which was really one of my favourite episodes of the year, but which I know a lot of people struggled with because of the slightly dodgy audio. Anyway, all of this is a very long-winded way of saying, well, would you expect anything less from me? That I enjoyed having this chat with this week's guest, Sam Bleakley, in person very much indeed. We recorded this one while I was down in Cornwall, staying with my friends at Watergate Bay. And for me, this one is very much a companion piece to the Dylan Graves episode a few weeks back because here we've got another amazing surfer using their talent and platform in an infinitely more interesting way than, if you ask me, most pro surfers do. I mean, obviously, if you just want to see pro surfers doing pro surfing, you do you. There's a lot of it out there. But I kind of like to see things slightly more and slightly more interesting take on these things which you know dylan provides and in this case sam provides sam's is a particularly interesting path that has seen him balance his fascination for geography and his academic background which he uses to try and make sense of the world try to balance those things with his passion for surfing and longboarding now this loose worldview and this interconnected territory has led him into some very interesting terrain indeed, both literally and metaphorically. Of course, there's the actual work itself, as well as a surfer and a bloody good one. Sam is a journalist, author, and academic, as well as a producer and presenter of his fantastic WSL show, Brilliant Corners, which we discuss in length during the conversation. And he's a commentator for the WSL Longboard Tour. And then there's the way that Sam's used these opportunities and interest to stretch himself creatively and how yet again he owes his current position to the opportunities he's created for himself by following these unique interests and doing it passionately and honestly. So yeah, some classic looking sideways themes in this one explored in a conversation that took its own meandering path in the way that the best looking sideways conversations do. I'll be back at the end for Housekeeping Corner, but in the meantime, here's me and Sam Bleakley, the dance of things. Enjoy. Nice view, nice setting we've got here, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. And it's a reminder that this time of year, the evenings, if you're on the west-facing coast at the times, because that's when you get the sunset colours. If you're on the south coast in the winter, you get the sunrise. Yeah. But this is the same aspect as the way I face at Gwenver next to Senan. So yeah. our highlight of a winter's day is often around now when you get that nice skyscape in the evening. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so that's where you were brought up, you were just saying, before we started recording. And because, you know, you were describing where you live and I know exactly where you are because I've stayed at Trevedra. It's kind of like our usual sort of, you know, everyone does that, don't they? Like piles down, stays there. 
walk down that path loads. Um, yeah, and you're right there. You're like literally on the headland, right? Absolutely, yeah. So Senan and Gwenver are where I learned to surf. Yeah. My dad actually grew up close to here in Newquay. His parents right. ran a B&B on Headland Road in the from the late 40s. Oh, wow. And he was one of the first group of 60s Newquay surfers in that young generation. Oh, wow. And then Amazing. he was always more attracted to West Penwith. So he got really interested in that stretch from Land's End, Porth, Kerno, Cape Cornwall. Yeah. And really magnetized towards Penzance St. Ives. And so we grew up in, in that area. Right. And we used to surf a lot at Perinuthno on the south coast, which is near Marazion. Yeah, yeah. Prey Sands area. Yeah. Um, St. Ives in the winter, which is great on a southwesterly Porthmere right and Senan and Gwenver in the summer and Senan and Gwenver is a place that I I knew as I started to travel that I wasn't going to beat it yeah and so I just went I did everything I could to stay there as my base and my anchor and now the kids are growing up there so it's nice to see them growing up where I grew up amazing so when he was so when you said I've got to dig into your dad a little bit because that's so interesting so like so he so he was down there from like the 40s when did he start surfing then because that that kind of early british surf history around that coast is so interesting isn't it because it, it, you're talking like a handful of people really aren't you at the beginning yeah so his parents were from the north his dad was from scotland right his mum was from the pennines and after the war they moved to cornwall because he had fought in egypt in the war and really wanted to be have more solitude be right. in more open space and he was also a trawlerman right um but being a glaswegian he was a heavy drinker and he ran a trawler out of newquay harbour they bought a a and b actually he was a bit of a gambler and their friend pulled out of the deal and uh he, right. he was given two greyhounds from burnley and he raced them at st the st austell track and he he won the 500 pounds he needed to to buy their b and b on headland road wow and then that's brilliant it's his, like a ben myers story or, yeah, or <laughs> yeah well he didn't so jock was my dad's dad who i never met because he died before i was born he didn't actually get into surfing but he was um running a bar in the b&b and a lot of the australian lifeguards used to drink there right and he won a uh nine six bob headboard in a game of poker and gave it to his son for his birthday he sounds like a legend yeah so he he died sadly of cancer before before i was born right and but my dad whose nickname is fuzz because his brother had fuzzy hair and he inherited that at school he he Classic. grew up in that 60s group of chris jones roger mansfield paul holmes chris became a great shaper roger a great surf culture person and writer and Paul Holmes went on to edit Tracks magazine and yeah. Surfer and Paul and Fuzz, my dad, used to run a magazine called Surf Insight in the early 70s. And so my dad was never a accomplished competitive surfer, but surfing was part of his lifeblood, still is. He yeah. still goes in as much as possible. So they basically found a way of making it work for them, like we all still do now like like i'm doing like you're doing like all our friends are doing i mean we're all we're all on the same blag aren't we really you know like here's the thing that we that we love we want to base our lives around how can you do it like what's what's the angle i love i i love that it's like that classic line from big wednesday when the woman in the cafe says the sport's a disease (laughs) 
and it, <laughs> it is it in it's fact, it infects you absolutely yeah. and it, it both makes your life and destroys your bank account permanently yeah unless you're one of the rare few who've made a good financial living out of surfing but I know my dad has, I have. I've sacrificed a lot to, for surfing to stay close to my routine. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. And once you get that bug, it, it's something that you really want to orientate your life around. And if you take those risks every now and then and pull your lifestyle away from it, you recognize that, you know, maybe you're not the person you want to be and you might kind of, you know, do your best to get back to living at the coast which might be a compromise of a certain career or job but if it keeps you in the water for a lot of people that's that's a huge drive for loads of us around the world so you presumably from an early age kind of took that influence and you know thought that's what i'm going to do because one one thing i've you know noticed about obviously doing some research into your sort of surfing career and life it looks like quite early on you know you recognized it as a way of as a vehicle for all your different interests, if you like, because, you know, you, you've really, it's not just surfing for you, is it? You know, like surfing, surfing's a way of exploring different cultures, like different locations, different destinations, like telling different stories. But it seems like from, that was always the point. Is that, is that kind of how it panned out for you when you were looking at it early on? Yeah, definitely. I feel as if, surfing was so second nature from such a small age yeah i was so much around old magazines old surfboards 60s british surfers who were still going and i just consumed all of the vhs's and the the culture of surfing so when i got into longboarding again it was quite natural for me to be the one of the rare young people who was interested in what they did in the 60s yeah but i never wanted to be a professional surfer I was actually really into going to Cambridge and I was really into geography and getting a place to study geography at Cambridge right and when I went to to Cambridge as much as I'd had some success competing as a as an emergent young European longboarder yeah it was then that I really had bigger success winning European title and British titles and got a sponsorship from Oxbow, who were the in the 90s. They were one of the few brands really behind longboarding yeah. and had a professional contract whilst I was still doing my degree. And that was when I realized that I could do the things I was interested in with regards to geography, which yeah. was travel, which was understanding cultures and communities as a travel writer for the surf magazines. But the bills were getting paid by a brand that was sponsoring me, expecting me to both compete and to feature in the magazines. And once I met a photographer called John Callahan, who was really into exploration and adventurous yeah. stuff, I got this nice opportunity to do a lot of freelance writing work. And that would both interest me as a writer and a as a geographer. And also it got me featured in the magazine, so it justified my sponsorship. And I enjoyed doing the, the World Longboard Tour. So at that early point, which is in the beginning of the 2000s, because I graduated in 2001. I'd won two European titles, was doing the world tour, but I had a formula of working with John Callahan to go to particular African and Asian and Caribbean coastlines and, and share stories from those places. And that was the love of geography I had. So surfing helped facilitate a lot of that work. And 
yes, I was never making much money, but I was somehow getting by. Yeah. And the years, uh, you know, went by and I realized I had a formula and things would always adapt and change. But that became my combination of this kind of love of of learning and the world and global cultures, geography, anthropology, environmental science, meteorology, oceanography, but then this love of longboarding and, and surf communities and um, still keeping my connection with the competitive side because I enjoyed the, you know, the, the community of, of surf contests, particularly in the longboard world. We got, like, like we were saying, you've got to find the angle, haven't you? You know, especially if you're a Brit, you know, if you're going to try and, I mean, just on that sort of, I'm not even going to say professional surf level because I do think you can, if you've got the passion for it, you know, I'm pretty mediocre board rider on, it, on all three of them really, but, you know, it was all equally driven by a passion and was able to sort of find a way of turning it into a career that had nothing to do with like, you know, being good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, but you, you've got to find the angle, haven't you? And I think it's interesting that you realise that so early because often... You, especially like I say if you're a British kid you can have all the sort of talent in the world and you can have all the potential in the world but unless you find that way of making it making yourself have a bit of value as you did like you say with the partnership with the photographer with the kind of stuff you're doing for the magazines with the competition thing there's a combination there isn't there that which gives people a reason to sort of support what you want to do right yeah and I always think that that for for British kids for british people that's so important isn't it because unless you've got that it's not going to be enough is it you know we're not in california we've not got people like we don't have that path or australia or south africa we don't have that sort of traditional path do we got to find your own way a little bit you know absolutely i think i got comfortable being an outsider first by getting majorly into longboarding and being the only young longboarder in my patch yeah because that was at the time probably also really unfashionable right 100 percent. we had our our bodyboard crew and our longboard crew and everyone hated us <laughs> and, and, but we we loved each other yeah and we yeah yeah and we kind of just dealt with all the abuse and and just because and then people started to realize how much fun we were having and yeah. the bodyboarders got into the slabs and the longboarders could surf any day all day any conditions because they didn't mind about this the, the quality of the waves and i think that being a longboarder got me comfortable as an outsider and also when I went to university in Cambridge, uh, I was uh, simply known as Surfer Sam. You right. Know, there was it wasn't there wasn't there were not many surfers, so I had this kind of uh, element of being comfortable being the outsider and thriving in that outsider status. And then through competitive surfing, when I realised that I was never going to be the next red hot Aussie or Californian or Hawaiian, yeah. I was a European. I was Cornish. I was British and. I think that there was a lot of refreshing things happening in the 90s, like Alex Dick Reed's The Surfer's Path, which had a very British angle. It was yeah. very intellectual and it was very creative. It was the British version of The Surfer's Journal. And I liked what Chris Power and Steve England were doing with Carve. That was very clean cut and yeah. commercial, but it was polished. It was bright. It was all about good photography and good content. And there was other things happening and I feel as if I grew into that scene and that generated work and publishing work with Alex Dick Reed was what really gave me an outlet as a writer and working with Chris Power taught me a lot about the surf media and working with Callahan, he had grown up John Callahan in Hawaii 
working with all the big names through the 70s and 80s and 90s, but then moved to Singapore and got really interested in working with European and Asian surfers and African surfers and not working for the mainstream magazines. And in the 90s and 2000s, there were a lot of different surf magazines and they all paid for content. And you could work freelance and and publish in those mags. And John had a really good network of airline travel mags and surf mags. Yeah. And he was also really avant-garde and interested in the in the the Italian surfers, the Japanese surfers, the Moroccan surfers, the English surfers. And the these kind of um combinations of things allowed me to thrive on being an outsider. I think when you look back the what what Alex did looks re- it just looks even more ahead of its time now, doesn't it? You know, like with the surfers path because like you say, it was, it was cerebral, wasn't it? You know, it had it had a pretty unapologetically kind of clever take on it, and it wasn't really trying to cut any corners for you, you know. Which which I think there's less. I don't know if I'm. Is there less room for that these days? Do you think? I felt like when I was starting out, getting stuff published, the few bits of work I had with the broadsheets or bigger publications they were so heavily edited and so crazily diluted I looked at them with a little bit of disappointment whereas I would give pieces to Alex and he would really bring the best out of them and, and then encourage me to go further and these niche publications with editors like Alex were open minded and if they saw a creative they would encourage you to be creative and that was wonderful because I could, I never have had a career as a writer for the broadsheets, but for sure, if I was contributing to the travel sections of the, you know, the the, the left wing papers that I would have wanted to work for, yeah, that I never would have got to to talk about surfing and jazz and Haitian voodoo and surf travel and the things that I was able to do in yeah, the surfer's path that they give you space for. That's so funny because I had quite a similar. Um, experience really like working on snowboard magazines like i didn't really appreciate how creatively fertile a little corner it was until quite late on because it sounds like quite a similar story to you like i was lucky enough to sort of start writing for those magazines like quite young really and yeah like i just when i look back it was ridiculously self-indulgent you know and and it was encouraged and and it and it but at the time I was always like, oh, you know, I want to, because I, I did the same thing. I used to pitch the, the airline mags, the travel mags, and you could do that. And I did a similar thing by the sounds that you used to do. You used to like, which is a question I'll ask you in a sec, but we used to like just pick a location. We'd go snowboarding there. You know, I'd do a story for like one of the, one of the British mags to sell it to all the American mags. Then I'd try and sell it to like the Guardian. Then I'd try and sell it to like a, a an in-flight magazine. And from that, you could obviously, you know, when she sold the pictures, same model that you obviously followed. But similar experience, like used to do that, used to be lucky enough to get commissioned by people like the Guardian and the Independent and be devastated because the work would be cut to pieces and it'd be really diluted. And after a while, I was like, actually i don't even i don't need to do that yeah. <laughs> i've got i've got a perfectly good outlet and i can do what i want and i don't need to worry about that and that's actually a really great thing but when you were doing these trips and you've got this kind of confluence of all of all your interests that we're talking about so is that and and the geography thing's obviously fascinating um 
so were you kind of like did you have a tick list you know as, as kind of glib as it sounds but w- was there like were you getting the atlas out and like right i want to go there i want to find i want to speak to this community i want to explore really because it looks that way when you look back on the places that you've been to and the things that you've covered yeah i was never motivated about the best waves yeah so it was never about i've got to surf sunset Eva pipeline hts anchor point you know although they're places i have loved to go to yeah but it was I, I was always drawn to the more unique kind of interesting place i think off the beaten track is a slightly kind of imperialist colonial phrase because off the beaten track is not off the beaten track to the, for the fishing people that live community. There. <laughs> lived there for thousands of years. Yeah, but it's like discovering Australia, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So it was never about wave quality. It was about learning about different communities and, and tr- trying to be an open-minded, interactive traveler and, 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 and really celebrating otherness and difference and bridge building and that cultural exchange. And for sure, Africa was a huge attraction and and still is and i think that in the early 2000s as we started to get the wave prediction models and all of the emergence of oceanographic science it was a realization of of um the places that had short period but consistent surf like the med the mediterranean how good the surf was in algeria and libya in egypt in in how good the surf was in the south china sea in in hainan in uh, taiwan and the places that we normally think of with the long period swells in the pacific or the atlantic realizing that you know there's these really interesting seasons the it with short period surf in different parts of the caribbean and becoming aware that there would be rideable waves in haiti there would be rideable waves in dominica there would be rideable waves in vietnam in myanmar in india and that awareness was a geography-based element. But for me, it was about the people and wanting to experience these places. And I still have that. As much as we've been in, I feel as if I've been in hibernation from the world, I, I'm forever romanticizing about what it would be like in Angola right now or right. Mozambique. Or I am, I'm a father, parent, and I've got responsibilities. But I've always had a huge passion for the smells and experiences of different places and they're not really driven by waves but certainly proximity to the coastline is important and being a longboarder i've always enjoyed just getting in whatever yeah but finding those those it used to be those kind of rolly point breaks or those kind of powerful african point breaks but it's become more those grassroots surf communities the real small scale scale emergent surf communities and seeing what they're up to and meeting these young empowered surf communities who share this common language of wave riding but might not have access to the same influences that an equivalent scene has had in Portugal or Hawaii or or wherever another surf group might be. So as somebody who's obviously really sensitive to the 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 colonial aspect of this as you as you put it earlier how do you how do you approach this with the required sensitivity, if you like? I'm sure you know what I'm getting at, because obviously in surf, travel, surf documentaries, it's let's be polite and say that it's been quite clunky over the years. Um, and it's still quite clunky, actually, I think personally, a lot, of, a lot of the way that it's handled. So, you know, somebody who's clearly aware of the nuances and sensitivities of a 
you know, a group of white people going to a place and discovering, as you put it, like a new surf location and documenting it. And how do you kind of balance that? What's your approach? Because from your work, it's clearly something you think really deeply about and, you know, that you're obviously passionate about and hyper aware of. Yeah, it's a huge barrier. And I would love to be a black Ghanaian female and really go to town on all of this because I feel as if I could re- my work would have would resonate much further because my real passion is emerging female scenes and and the you know the African surf and Caribbean and Asian surf communities but I'm a white British guy and I come with a lot of historical baggage that's not necessarily you know my you know parents kind of fault but it but ancestrally there's so much connectivity between what I appear to represent as an outsider coming into an African surf community or an Asian or a Caribbean surf community as a white, now middle-aged, well-educated man. And I'm very conscious of that. And and I'm, I'm glad that that's a problem because it should be. But I'm also of the opinion that we need to be open and, and bridge building is a good thing and any healthy community has to be open and not insular and i think the best progress we we make as society is when we are inclusive and we accept that the inside and outside can can work together and the global and the local and it's not just about being locals only you can accept that there can be a new injection of ideas and energy and creativity from the outside that can bring a lot to a community so I'm always conscious and I make fun of myself, but at the same time, I try to get around it by being sensitive, being open and working, you know, in a a wholesome way with people on the ground and really, you know, I never come with much budget to do my work, but what little budget I bring, I'll always want to bring directly into the community that we're sharing time with. And are you, are you looking... Do you, do you do you start when you're looking at a place with a story in mind some to often or are you or are you looking to uncover something on the way a bit of both so the more recent wave of work for me in the last 12 years which has been filmmaking yep. originally it was more kind of writing yep. and the filmmaking of the brilliant corner series has become a platform uh, i I'm using things that have been built up from past experiences. So I might have gone to a place before and 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 formed a small network. And it's some something that motivates me is kind of re-representation of misrepresented places. So that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. It's a tongue twister. So I I get you know kind of inundated with you know, the negative stories on Haiti or Somalia right. or ex- Sudan or Mogadishu. It's a, it's a good example, actually, isn't it? Haiti in particular. Yeah. Because that is a place that really suffers from the way it's been depicted in the West, essentially, isn't it? It's almost like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, dehumanized. Yeah. Collectively. Well, it, Haiti really got under my skin when I first went there and I did a PhD on Haiti because I got so interested in it. Yeah. But I'd I'd rather see a piece on Mogadishu in Somalia about the role of surf therapy for some local people because there's a great bit of surf in Mogadishu. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with news journalism, but I've been of the opinion that I want to bring some stories to light that are quite celebratory that they're about 
communities being proactive, engaging with the coastline, and they're celebratory of the history of architecture, food, music, dance, what it might be that's yeah. a, that, that resonates and kind of links to the dance of surfing. And Haiti's a good example of somewhere that was so depicted so negatively and has such a history of that. But experiencing what actually the country and the culture has to offer and sharing new narratives on that interests me. Yeah. That's where the problem as a white outsider is even more acute. Yeah. But, but I, I've still wanted to give it a go. And I look back on my old work, some of which is riddled with imperial colonial elements. But you can see that I'm trying to be open-minded. Yeah. Maybe sometimes I'm a bit naive, but I, I, you know, I want to kind of confront it. I don't want to brush it under the carpet. And so it's that re-representation of places and sharing those positive narratives on Sierra Leone or Liberia or, or Cote d'Ivoire or wherever it might be, Madagascar, and seeing the local surf community proud to see them represented in this way but making sure that their story is told in an authentic manner and keeping sure that if there's any element of of publication, whether it be in a film or in print, that there's a sense of checking that they're proud of the way they've been, their story's been told before it gets that far. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse than policing knowledge and information in the way the broadsheets do where they're, you know, they wouldn't let somebody proofread their own personal story before it went to press well, i think well, that it's really good to to kind of have that kind of openness about whose whose story are we telling here and how are they happy with the way their story is being told because stories is so much part of the way we engage and consume well it's, it's fascinating isn't it because that reckoning that you're talking about is constant really i mean i think about this on two levels really i think about this on like a personal level so if you talk about if we think about what you're talking about and like how you as an individual or me as an individual, you can try and doesn't matter how woke you are, hateful phrase, but it's handy for these purposes. It, it's, it's actually really difficult to do it, to, to, to approach, to, to escape the cultural associations and, that have accumulated on you, in you over the years, especially like you say, with our, with the Imperial, perspective that we're from we're coming from is it is actually really hard like um and and that means obviously we should try as much as we can to escape it but it is difficult i mean i was you know researching some stuff earlier and um you you were talking in an interview about madagascar i know nothing about madagascar and i found myself like just reaching for the nearest cliche you know like and then and then basically and even in my head, I could tell I was like, a, there was like deepest, darkest Africa associations going on just because I haven't got any of the reference points to, and I could tell I was doing it and I was quite horrified, you know. But the other thing I was going to say is like, this reckoning is going on in this country as well, isn't it? You know, you can see by this constant ongoing debate about how we deal with our imperialist past and how we deal with the effect that's had on the, the rest of the world and this country, you know, it, it, it on that level, it's very difficult to escape as well. It's It's... It is challenging, basically, which I think is why the work that you're doing is is important and is, and by the sounds of it, a life's work, really. You know, so is, have you found, because you mentioned naivety, clunkiness, if you like, so have you found that the longer you've been doing this and the longer you've been trying to tell these stories, you're able to 
disassociate yourself from these implications a bit more easily if you like it depends on the platform i think if you've got the time and money in the bank to really do your best work you can really tell the story you'd love to tell but sometimes you get tangled in a run of work that has a particular funding stream that is associated with certain representations and you get caught up in in that balance of meeting the commercial imperative with trying to tell a story yeah and we i'm sure all people experience that in every level from whether they're a really good gardener and they're being told by their employee to you know you know do it this way but they'd love to do it that way <laughs> the gardener's swanning around with the cravat on <laughs> absolutely and so my last Hang on, i'm an artist mate come on yeah well, my, my last kind of platform of you know to, to one extent well you're um, working with wsl so yeah that, so that must be that's a classic commerce creativity conundrum I imagine. yeah and they've been really good and i've just so the the big the kind of big run of 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 work that has an outlet for me in the last kind of 10 years has been the occasional book the mindfulness and surfing books have been really popular yeah but the work as a commentator at the world longboard tour has been a real joy and working on the brilliant corners films that have been funded by the world surf league and that i was appointed a really good producer who was really supportive of my creative approach because my work is never mainstream it's always on that creative edge of weird surf thinking and i'm doing everything i can to interconnect the most unconnected topics to yeah. surfing well and it's that like, really stimulates me it's like we said though it's it is cerebral it's highbrow it is unapologetically so which I, I love but it is a tough sell in the surf industry absolutely i look yeah. back on things and and think oh my gosh wow i'm really grateful that i got supported to do that but then again i do things for quite spartan budgets because i'm doing them as a labor of love, generally seeing things through myself, but working with people who who want to be involved in some experiential elements, so they'll sacrifice a lower budget because they would really enjoy that experience and that the outcome is something they might be proud to be linked to or have worked on. And but I'm not crazy stubborn about a you know, about my vision shining through, but there is certain kind of levels of authenticity I really try to defend and so I've quite I'm quite proud of the stories I've shared on Madagascar, Papua New Guinea, India, Senegal, Algeria and Zanzibar which have been the World Surf League Brilliant Corners series yeah. that they that they've straddled that line between being creative, cultured but at the same time funded yeah. by you know a, a big organization that's specializes in surf competitions and yeah, I'm not. I haven't got a massive fan base, and but but if one person is inspired, that matters to me. Yeah. When I get that one message from somebody that says, "I love that," that really inspired me, or the local crew that were represented in Senegal or Papua New Guinea, the the first thing I always do with working versions is make sure that the right people can see it and they're happy with it before it goes any further for any producer to review or for any any kind of you know final edit to go online or or to tv or wherever it might be going because th that's really key for me and there will be a long background of working with a local crew of people that might have might be friends from previous experiences but th they're people who i know from before making the film are going to be 
they they wanted to see that take on their place because they felt it hadn't been done yet. And um, oh yeah, hundred percent. If I was a black presenter, I'd I feel as if I'd be taken much more seriously. Uh, so I accept that a lot of people are going to cut me down because I'm in Madagascar as a white Englishman, but I'm doing my best with it. And one or two people will be inspired, and that means enough for me to keep wanting to do that kind of work. See, this producer that you mentioned has been presumably supportive of the the vision the wsl producer that's kind of so is that someone that you've worked quite closely with to kind of shepherd it yeah through those channels yeah so actually the the work is really kind of my own kind of ideas and but and then working with a camera woman or cameraman and working with a good editor but then with a bit of bit of funding the wsl appointed a woman called camille herrera who was the producer of this recent Brilliant Corner series. And she came comes from um, both a sport and, and broadcast production background, but um, extremely interested in the stories being shared and, and really, you know, brought a nice balance of making things entertaining with sustaining the integrity of some of the stories. And um, that was really refreshing. And we easily demonize the bigger organizations but relative to the scale of motor racing or tennis or football or cricket surfing is quite small and the world surf league is actually from my experience working with them from commentating at longboard events competing before that as a professional and now working making travel content is being positive and there's a lot of really talented interesting people in the organization some in their american offices some in their australian offices and some working freelance and collaborating you know there's there's people who who kind of do a number of things and then work a little bit with wsl and um yeah i think that we always have to kind of because we know the surf world it's easy to kind of criticize and we all do things that are a bit embarrassing um i'm not a massive fan of the ultimate surfer thing i think that was that's like um you know not my cup of tea but the fact that you're not that we're not the target market are we no yeah yeah <laughs> but, but i like I, i've just seen a new show they've been doing called detour which is about californian surf towns right that looks great well they and just try and cover the broad church don't they and at least they're trying things aren't they i mean i always just think surfing in 2021 is it is it's a broad scenario there's yeah. a lot it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and it's fun and i love the difference and that's what i've never been that i you know a massive celebrator of great elite shortboarding and i've got i love to see the best surf well and I'm really happy to support that but at the same time i'm much more interested in the rise of adaptive surfing which is big in the uk Certainly at the moment, the adaptive team are out in the ISA World, the, the Para, World Para Surfing Championships in California starting any day. That excites me a lot. These grassroots surf communities that bring a refreshing element of movement to surfing. You know, young um, Senegalese surfers who are going to bring new angles to wave riding. They're, those things, you know, relationships with surfing and music, you know, all those kind of slightly more on the edge kind of creative elements that they excite me that's not where the big attention is but but they exist and you're never gonna have much funding around those pockets but at the same time 
um that's the artistry of surfing and that's what you know i really get a lot of joy out of is when i kind of hear about some of these alternative ways of being a surfer of living more sustainably of 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 what james otter does with with building wooden boards of what finisterre do with trying to make as sustainable products as possible of what you know small scale sustainable tourism offer in um liberia might be doing to kind of bring in a community to be lifeguards to support domestic tourism these types of things for me capture my attention more than who's in the world title race and longboarding has always got that kind of outsider status so that's kind of that you know that in the in the early days of the longboard world tour uh, well there has earlier days than my time but um we went for a phase where we were having the events in really obscure destinations, which was really refreshing. And then it got to the point where there was just no money for professional longboarding. So the, the, the events were going even more and more obscure. And that was the reason why there was a run of events in Hainan, China, in Taiwan, in Papua New Guinea, because these were kind of regional tourism funds and governments trying to promote particular coastlines. And there wasn't the money to go to the classic places but I'm really grateful I was there involved in that because they're, they're exactly the places I wanted to be, to see that new generation of Chinese surfers, of Papua New Guinean surfers, of Taiwanese surfers. Um, and we're, you know, that kind of, that kind of alternative element. And you'll get that. I don't know snowboard culture, but I know that I, I you know, I imagine that that exists as well in snowboard culture, that kind of um, alternative, refreshing it, side. It kind of does. That's an interesting point, actually, um, which I won't dwell on too much because it might not be that interesting to people. But um, the problem with snowboarding is you, to do it, you've got to go to what are essentially islands for rich people. <laughs> so, you know, like there are there are sort of blue collar communities if you like but at the end of the day it costs money you know like it cut you the kit's expensive the lift tickets are expensive so there are there are little pockets and there there are more i think the more interesting stories are like where you've had these little evil evolutionary sort of cul-de-sacs where people have kind of worked it out for themselves like it's famously a village in turkey where they just invented it on their own you know um so stuff like that but generally it's it's a bit less so i would say um, but on the longboarding thing, do you think it's having the, you know, it looks like it's having a moment. It looks like it's back in, in, you know, and, and being given a, a platform, the, the right platform. Is that how you see it? I think the most exciting thing about longboarding is the contribution of women to surfing and longboarding. And I think going back to the 90s when you had Cassia Meador and Belinda Bags and Carla Roland Zamora and those women bringing a beautiful feminine approach to cross-stepping and nose riding they surf better than any of the male longboarders did then and do now and there's a great generation of women in Waikiki longboarding really beautifully and my daughter uh, is really into her longboarding and that whole movement of feminine longboarding as dance i think is really healthy for surfing because it's very graceful and it is a joy to watch and it blows me away that the brands haven't really kind of capitalized on it as much as they could because it's i think it's really entertaining watching 
you know, people longboard good point breaks, you know, kind of waist high waves. Yeah. And I think it could, you could really put on some really special shows, but it's still, the funding isn't anywhere no, near That's a really interesting point, actually. Who's the, I'm just, is it Avalon, the Hawaiian girl? Yeah, uh, from Laguna Beach. Yeah. She, California Avalon Ghoul. Yeah, yeah right, really she's Californian. Good, but s- somebody just sprung to mind when, when you mentioned that, who, yeah, it's just like, she used to be absolutely a dancer. beautiful style yeah like, so she's her mum was vietnamese and her dad's um californian i believe they're from the jacuzzi family right on the dad's okay. side that's got the kind of wineries in san francisco and everything and but she grew up in laguna right and um yeah really great goofy footer and it's i just think that's really refreshing and that's one of the big passions for me working as a commentator at the longboard events of which there are not many that have a live broadcast is just to be able to celebrate that and i the guys as well ben skinner just got second to joel tudor yeah, yeah. in malibu and i was really heartbroken not to be there but in the pandemic they weren't employing any foreign staff it was local judges and local media but i was so proud of ben who's an old friend and yeah. someone i've Amazing. surfed with for and we actually competed here at watergate a couple of weeks before he went out to California doing the English championships. And Ben is a big inspiration for me. I'm about seven, nine years older than Ben. I'm kind of like almost a generation older, but he was young on the scene. And it was so exciting when Ben came onto the competitive longboard scene. And I'm a firm supporter of what he does and is doing. And that, you know, it's really, it's great. The the longboard community embraces quite a broad age range, mm. and uh, and that that's always been quite quite cool. And you get ah, oh, there's some just been some hilarious characters. There used to be a really funny uh, Brazilian character called Jeremiah de Silva, and we had a world tour that went through R- Sacarema in Rio, and he was a local lifeguard and fisherman, and he did really well and won some prize money and started competing around very christian guy he used to say in his posty interviews that his sponsor was god <laughs> and uh he uh we had the final of the world tour in new zealand in raglan and uh he didn't even have a wetsuit and he came and borrowed some wetsuits but he first surfed he surfed in his speedos legend and he was just a real great character and that variety of personalities that you get within the longboard community i think that's really that, that, that i find that really really uh, interesting well it's it is such an interesting point you made about brands not back in that female longboard scene at the minute because you know it's so accessible and you've probably this is like completely anecdotal but i'm sure you've also noticed especially in the uk like how many women are taking up surfing i mean of all ages like it, it where i surf it's definitely a thing um and one of the most positive aspects of the pandemic that came out of you know in the uk sort of surf context and it would be a bit of an easy win for a brand wouldn't it to to kind of like really show that as a path you know like as a way that people can can find their own sort of style of surfing because because it is like accessible it's beautiful it's feminine like you say all those things that you mentioned like yeah it seems like a bit of a missed miss trick really doesn't it yeah yeah and but also just that whole use of the coast it, you know we've really been reminded of how brilliant and beautiful our you know british coastline is but at the same time we really got to manage it well because we're 
it's it's obvious that we're all going to want to continue to use the coast, not just in the summer all year. Wetsuits are getting better. People are getting more into cold water swimming. And there's such a variety of accessible ways of wave riding from wooden belly boards to long boards and everything in between for all ages from your three-year-old to your 93-year-old. And, you know, we re- as a British surf community, we really need to come together to talk about the ways we, we stand up for our coast and the ways we manage it. And, of course, the environment is a, is a massive part of our, of, of, of our surf community. And I'm not someone, as much as travel is part of my output of work, it's not irresponsible travel I've ever wanted to support. It's not excessive jet setting and kerosene consumption it's about it's about projects that have meaning but it's not a carbon footprint i've ever been proud of but as a british surfer i've got really interested in staying very close to to where i am and making sure that i'm really supporting the types of things that have meaning for a more sustainable way of being a british surfer with the types of wetsuits we consume the types of boards we use the, the types of behavior we embody when we're at the coast because it's getting busier and busier and the days of being the arrogant territorial local uh, they're just not useful but we need to have generations that care for the way we manage the coast safely so there's all these things happening and yeah. uh, I feel as if couldn't, we really need some good governance yeah I couldn't to, agree more to really stand up because our governing bodies need to be stronger voices i could not agree more especially after what we've been through the pandemic because surfing in britain has always been fairly strong and and it is way stronger than it's ever been but our governing body hasn't kept up with that and if they don't then we will miss the chance to really be better managers of the of the coastline if we if we get it wrong we're just going to have thousands of people at every break bashing into each other, injuring each other whilst raw sewage is getting pumped out to the beach around the corner. And that's exactly what we don't need. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, at every level, there's almost a vacuum of leadership, isn't there? And I don't mean that to disparage anybody that's involved on in leadership level at all. And I, and I know you don't either. But I think you, the way that you put it is like, it's changing and but it's not keeping up is is the point isn't it because again if i look at if i look at my friends that have started surfing you know like at every point there's an opportunity to educate people in 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 you know i'm not even going to say like acceptable behavior because i think that's just almost like too on the nose but just about just to just to shape the conversation isn't there about like you know what's expected like what how we should as you elegantly put it like safeguard our coastline let's just call it that and it's not really there is it and and that vacuum then is filled by the old conventions whether that's localism or whether that's you know the the way that we handle issues of of crowding or of, of you know all these issues like there's it is filled by pretty not fit for purpose i believe conventions these days and it just it just seems and obviously that suits a lot of people like you say you know that suits keeping that status quo in place with these old conventions that we're talking about like that that you know that that's to the benefit of of a lot of people that have been doing this for a long time but it is a missed opportunity i think and 
you know, for me, unless you actually have this conversation and address these issues, it's not going to get any better, is it? And it's only going one way. You know, it's it's not going to change. Like, it's only going to get more crowded. There's only going to be more people in the water. It's only going to get more polluted. All these things. It, yeah. Do you, do you, so, obviously, you've thought about this and obviously we're sort of of a similar viewpoint. So, what what could be done, do you think? What would you? What, what kind of leadership are you talking about there? Well, as strange as it sounds, one of the most cutting-edge models of sustainable surf, surf tourism that I've come across is in Papua New Guinea. Right. And it's to do with the custodian land ownership of, of areas and how, you know, clans own and inherit coast and fringing reefs and to access those that they have to be involved and the the governing body of surfing in Papua New Guinea has made it legislation for any surf camp to exist it has to fit with all these local rules and regulations and particularly some areas of Papua New Guinea the women own and inherit the land in matrilineal systems and other areas are patrilineal where the men own and inherit the land. They tend to have much more violence and alcohol <laughs> and problematic situations compared to the female-led areas. But the governing surf organization there has got this cutting-edge model in, in, in one of the, you know, what's considered one of the more kind of rural, remote parts of the world. And we, as British surfers, can learn a lot from that about how we share wealth, how we regulate, how, how we cap numbers, how we manage in and out how we articulate the stories of the experiences to make things inclusive and i think the wave in bristol and snow and the wave garden in snowdonia and other emerging surf lakes are great places to really bring people together to explore how we manage our coastlines because you've got a a kind of a self-contained area and when when i take my son to the skate park in penzance um, it's it's really interesting because you can't stop the three-year-old on the scooter from just out the blue, just going across the middle of the skate park when the 28-year-old red-hot ripper yeah. is moving at a quick speed around. And in the sea, to a certain extent, if the surf's bigger than waist high, the the sea will kind of regulate those that can get on the peak and catch waves and and keep certain other levels in certain areas but not that's not always the case and i don't have the answers to how we regulate our coastlines but i think that the national trust has got to step up to the plate and realize that they actually own the access to a lot of our good coast breaks english heritage and lots of private car parks and private accesses why not just get in the debate and talk about this and magic seaweed needs to come on board it's completely irrational for Magic Seaweed to throw six new spots in a remote area f- without any thought of how that place can handle the access of the narrow roads and the lack of parking. Are the toilets, are the resources? And all the big players, commercially like Magic Seaweed, who never reply to the emails that you send if you try to intellectually engage with why do you need this spot when you've got another neighboring spot that has resources, has access has toilets, has car parks, can host thousands of people. Why do you need this one that has a narrow road and has no car park? Why do you need it there? What are you getting from it? Why don't you come to the table and get in the debate? And, you know, we these are we should be excited about talking about this stuff because we, we, we want our kids to, to grow up on a, on a coastline where we've got a better type of regulation because 
it will get more and more crowded and more and more hectic. And we need a strong voice in it or else we will be ignored as surfers. We'll be written off as, oh, it's just the surfers. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, it's funny. I was in Wales in May and it was, you probably remember like late May was really probably first decent summer swell. And it was carnage, I must say. It was like single track road down to this. You know, obviously it had five stars all week and there must have been 200 cars on this road. Everyone double parked, you know, like, two mile long traffic jam like getting in and out locals fume you know the, the, the i mean you live in cornwall i mean you live in west Penwith. i mean jesus you see it all the time don't you but yeah you're right it just doesn't really it's not a lot of joined up thinking let's no. put it that way yeah the power of those magic seaweed swells is incredible you know and we, you know we need to think about the impact that has well and the impact on a lot of levels i mean i've been having this like vague ongoing debate with James Bowden, who's a friend of yours, right? About just about photography, you know, how it's changed the responsibility of photographers. It's this huge debate, isn't it? About like, when do you put this stuff online? You know, like, can, should, because obviously old school, take a picture a few months later, you know, we all know it came in the magazine, didn't really matter, but you put, put a picture online from that swell that's had five stars that day. You're just encouraging, you know, a lot more people to come down. And that's another layer of kind of, you know, how do you, as custodians, as people that kind of, even at that level, have a bit of a responsibility? It's changing the debate, yeah. isn't it? It's changing uh, the terms of like how we talk about these things. And I think a really important term that we should all be really comfortable with as surfers is carrying capacity. What is the carrying capacity of that break? You know, what's the access like? Where do people park? Where are people coming from? What are the facilities? If it's got a huge car park and a big open beach that breaks all tide that's got a big carrying capacity but if it's got no parking a narrow lane and you're really having a big impact as a group trampling down uh, you know as a, a, an area that that doesn't need to be trampled down by thousands of people you've got to think you know sh- should should we be so you know should we be broadcasting this particular place at that level and that you know we we we've, we see this in sport in other we can learn from the Hillsborough disaster, a simple thing like that, the sensibility of how you funnel movement of people. We know in football stadiums around the world, you don't, you don't funnel tens of thousands of people through a narrow area and, and force them to crowd in one corner. And we haven't had a big, crazy incident yet in surfing that's really grabbed the danger headlines. We get the odd flash rip, but there will be one. And then that will make more people listen at a higher level. But between now and then, it's important that Surfing England, the emerging Surfing GB, the Sky Brown effect, the fact that we've got Olympic funding for surfing. Sky Brown might want to represent Britain as a surfer. She's already had a huge impact as a skateboarder. And, you know, the, the she, she's a super brand that can attract massive attention. Mm. We need, you know, we're British. We've got London. We've, got, we've created some of the best music and literature that that you know that a lot of people love we can be great british surfers as well you know we, will we create an, a shortboard world champion we might well do there might be a seven-year-old out there lucas skinner might be a world champion in 10 years time we, you know we need we need to rise to the occasion and, and and harness the power we have with the beauty of scotland the power of wales the intensity of the northeast the the creativity of london the the, you know the, the the rawness of Cornwall. There's all these great qualities 
that you know i'm making my, i'm basically trying to I'm, i don't want to be a running <laughs> serve england but it you know maybe i should well, it's be. a vision though isn't it? but it's, it's like it's an idea isn't it it's like i mean the, the obvious question though is is that you know thoughtful almost utopian converse dialogue based vision that you just outlined compatible with the elbows out nature of surfing and i speak of as somebody who's just been on a boat trip in the maldives like eight friends who couldn't organize the break without everybody getting pissed off because people were snaking each other <laughs> you know what i mean like it's um so how it can can it can it be done can you do it can you have that when you've got something that that create causes people to behave so rationally at the end of the day can 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 it be done I think it doesn't have to be done if you don't breach the carrying capacity of the experience. But I think where the the levels of people involved are so large, it, there has to be some you know level of a raising people with a real good awareness of the context so that they behave well and, and sensibly, and b there being some governance and legislation that that controls some of the dangerous elements of of growth and development. And 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 I think that. You know that's like that's that, that that's natural in other kind of cultures and sports and that and activities that you know if there's a big demand on a resource like there is on our environment we've really got to manage our our energy and our water and and the the resources that feed us and I think that use of the sea and is for therapeutic benefits is so powerful. And we should be right at the front line of really trying to trying to raise our kids to really respect it in the ways that we want. And that's what's quite cool about going to the wave is that fact that you've got that cue system and you, you know, you share. And, well, it removes it, doesn't it? It's great. And, yeah. and, and, and you get all the puff feathers and the testosterone. But once you start talking, yeah. people chill out. No, and you're, it's, you're, and so, it's really you're so nice. right. Because I was there on Thursday last week and it's i've been probably like yourself been there probably about 10 times now and it's it is amazing that isn't it because you get there and you've got all that tension that comes with paddling out anywhere really you know if you don't if it's busy and you don't know anyone but as soon as you as soon as somebody speaks it's completely dissipated isn't it it completely changes communication and and then everybody is just in it together and it's a very enjoyable thing but what you're talking about leadership though aren't you you know you're talking about like it's going to because if you look at Hugo and what he what how he and that organization shapes that conversation that is true leadership you know they are absolutely they are <clears throat> they're, sh- they're sh- they've got a vision they're shaping the conversation and it's going to require that across the, these fronts isn't it yeah really? and and the, you know the, the the career paths being there and that length of that role having a sense of longevity and in the days of when I first started competing, Colin Wilson used to be the the leader of the British Surfing Association and um, he was fantastic. He was so stable and steady and I always, I've always admired the work that Dave Reed has done with the UK Pro Surf Association and his role as an ASP judge and his role at the Boardmasters and we've got some amazing leaders. Nick Hounsfield at the Wave mm. who is yeah. the director of Surfing England. Another visionary. And, and, and you know, getting women in these positions you know the 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 there's the round table opportunities of unconfrontational politics and more compromise based politics i think we should be good at that as surfers 
And we're never going to be able to, you know, have the kind of one idea fits all mode. But if we learn to compromise like you do in any good relationship, you you never, you've always got to learn to compromise. I think that, you know, women can really bring that to British surfing. And I, I, I found that in my times of getting into politics and environmentalism, what put me off was the confrontational element of it. I, I've, and that's why I moved more into the world of media and storytelling and sharing ideas because I love the creativity and the thought and the different ideas, but I found it quite heartbreaking to be in those argumentative situations where it was like, there was not, a, we can have a hot debate, but we don't have to have a fight over it. We can we can maybe compromise over time. and And I think that, I really want to see a coming together of our of our Irish, Scottish, well, not our Irish, but Ireland is such a powerful force in European culture and we're neighbours. Our Scottish, our Welsh, our English surf communities politically, we gotta unite because we you know, we got a lot of exciting things on the cards. Sky Brown, Lucas Skinner, the fact that people are gonna to want to go to the coast all year. Mm. February or August, the wetsuits are there. There's the all of the growth of all the, the brands, sustainability brands, all the brands like. that are telling the same story. Yeah, so we we got to, we got to get on board and we got to look for the great case studies that, that where things are doing well. Learn from the emerging surf lakes community, and we can be British about it. We've already established you and I talking how our own careers have been about playing to our strengths as mm. british people and we yeah. can do that and we don't have to be white middle class imperialist about it because britain isn't that britain is one of the more multicultural parts of the planet and we will have a, an emerging black british surf community asian british surf community that will happen and i think the wave bristol will be one of the springboards for that yeah because look at bristol as a hotbed of culture and you know it's gonna be so exciting to see the next generation of British Caribbean Bristol surfers who might have learned at the wave and take a really great uh, element of of inspiration from their ancestral roots to bring to British surfing. Um, so yeah, I think that my my motivation is bringing some of these new stories to the table so we can all find them and hear them and be open minded and 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 mix and exchange and and you know and do that and do that kind of kind of cultural melting pot thing where we kind of pull the best of different ideas of course we like to travel as surfers and in the days of of being demonized for wanting to travel that's a difficult one um so you know i I don't have the answer to that because yes i still do want to go to angola at some point but i've also accept that i'm gonna be doing a lot less traveling but my kids have got a lot out of the cultural experiences they've had of travel to the likes of Kerala in India, Barbados in the Caribbean. And, you know, I'd love to think that they can experience Mozambique or Morocco in their kind of surf journeys, because I think it's healthy to see all these different perspectives and hope that those Moroccan and Mozambique friends can also come and stay with them here in Cornwall. I want to ask you a couple more questions about um brilliant corners if that's all right because one of the, one of the things that i was i noticed again from looking into the background of it, it's a long haul right it's like it's a long project from when you've had the first idea 
and put that first iteration of that together to where you are now to getting it like you know distribution with the WSL and working like it's it's actually taken quite a long time hasn't it it looks like it's taken like a decade or something yeah longer actually yeah which so- I which I really like because I think you forget when you know you see brilliant corners WSL distribution you know you doing the commentary blah blah you don't really think about like what what was behind that and like how how many how you've had to creatively stick to your guns if you like to get it to this point which is really interesting because I think people sort of forget that side of it um so it's looking at it looks like it was a lot of learning on the job and a lot of you know kind of being flexible really to try and get it get it out there is that how it went down yeah it was the name Brilliant Corners is the name of a jazz album by Thelonious Monk I thought so which is also pretty niche well the my first book that I wrote was called Surfing Brilliant Corners and that was illustrated by John Callahan's photos and in my magazine writing I'd got quite interested in the synergy of jazz and surfing and surfers surfing like jazz musicians play music and 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 Brilliant Corners was a nice metaphor for that because Monk's album was quite experimental and it was the first album where he spliced together the the rec- the the, the the recordings because he couldn't get the exact track he wanted and it was a symbol of kind of going to the cobwebs so I always had that in my head as a writer and as a professional surfer I was commonly featured in documentaries and every now and then I would do something where I was more on camera talking to camera and and then I started doing a couple of things and I could see that the people doing it were doing a good job but but I had a slightly different angle. And I thought maybe I should just try to do this. And when I started doing my PhD at Falmouth on Haiti, I saw a grant for creative storytelling. And I won a small grant and made a film about my travel in Haiti and called it Brilliant Corners Haiti. And then got some surf sponsorship budgets and pulled together small funding to do a season of shows in Jamaica, Barbados, Liberia and China. Edited it together, extreme video, distributed it. You edited it yourself? Edited it with a friend. Right. Did you know what you were doing or did you work that out? Well, he had editing experience, Robin Simpson, and the people I shot it with had good filming experience. And I was really interested in the the surf communities, surfing as dance, cultural stuff, but also... I really loved the old Alan Wicker travel shows and yeah. the way he gave these really interesting pieces to camera. Yeah, real very, monologue style. Yeah, and very apocalyptic scenarios, often like a busy African market or along Is it, streets. Another, another like very ahead of its time, when you look back, subversive take, really. Yeah. Is, wasn't it, you know? So, so terribly imperialist and colonial, but artistically, the framing and the style. Yeah. So a combination of Michael Palin and Alan Wicker, I was thinking this, maybe there's something in a kind of presenter-led surf travel show. And I wanted it to be much more about surf communities, emerging surf communities, but the funding was coming more from my role as an active professional. So there was always been a performative element for me showcasing the board I was using or the clothes or the kit because that's where the money was coming from. Yeah. And so I kind of had to always straddle that. And then I did a season, got it distributed, 
And then when the wave were emerging and I was doing a lot of writing work for them as a brand, they supported me to do a second season. And I learned more about post-production and filmmaking. And then the, the WSL approached me to do the more recent set of shows that are lots of short shows because they wanted them to live online. But we're now re-editing that into the 52 minute format, which the old shows are at. And the old shows live in different places and quite hard to find, but the World right. Surf League ones are very easy to find on their website. But they are they are out there and every now and then you get an email from someone who's watched them in Brazil or Poland and and those mean something. I'm always really grateful. Like when you get feedback from the books, you yeah. know. I don't I don't I have a not a big fan base. I have a bit of a niche following of people who respect some of the um creativity in the work I do. But I've always needed to do other things like lecturing at Falmouth helps pay the bills. Yeah. Freelance content writing um, is an important thing to pay the bills. But deep down, there's a lot more filmmaking left in me. I really want to do more. And definitely the growing element is these kind of emerging surf communities, but also the sense of responsible tourism and curating a really good adventure for the group of people on board. Yeah. We did an amazing project in Algeria with Lucy Small, who you did a brilliant podcast with. I love, I love listening to that. Big fan of Lucy's work and her voice as a, you know, a leader. And Yeah, she's great. And also she had done a lot of work in conflict studies and the role of women on the front line in conflict zones. So when I was doing a, sh a, a plan to go to Algeria... Uh, the first thing that came to my head was, I wonder if Lucy would be interested. And we 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 had a great trip, and that was just before the pandemic. And the sense of curating a small group experience like that is really rewarding. And for me, is I got energy and passion to do more of that. So yeah, I hope I hope, I hope there can be more opportunities to do that. Well, I just like the fact that you know it's. A you have to do the work to get the rewards, don't you? You know, you have to, you have to do something for the sake of doing it because it's a, it's an idea yeah. that you're passionate about and you don't have to, and you, you obviously weren't worrying about like where it was going to lead really. You were just trying to make it happen. And I just work hard to get by as well. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that, you know, the editing is low paid. There's no budget, but it's got to get done and it takes a long time and you learn a lot. But at the same time, I'm often juggling other bits of, yeah. of of work and being really busy. And being a parent helps keep my feet on the ground because yeah. the kids will get you down in the water. And, you know, I'm, I love playing Sabutio or chess with my son and just really <laughs> getting back down to earth. Or he And they, I've really worked hard for Lola and Ruben to love the water. And they do. And that has not been about letting them get intimidated by the water. It's about the water being a safe, positive space for them and then building up to that with that self-confidence so they can cope with bigger and more extreme surf or, you know, swimming in heavy shore breaks. would never do that in the early days, but now they love wild ocean. But they also love the tiny, small winter days that those little glimmers of winter light really keep you motivated through these difficult months in Britain. And you've got to make sure you're ready to get them on those weekends where it's sunny and cold but bright and you get that light bursting through. That keeps you going. Yeah. And you've you got to like drop, you've got to be able to drop everything for a few hours if you, at certain times to get that. Because if, if not, then 
you lose touch with the joy of of, of it and the, the the real pleasures of being a British surfer in the winter for me are those little slices of 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 of, of yoky bright sunsets in the middle of February when it's been grey for three weeks, but you suddenly see that yellow sun again and it's freezing, but that light is there and. I have to, you know, touch that as regularly as possible to stay motivated about our winters because I do prefer our spring, summer, autumns because you can wear flip-flops and not a hood. <laughs> yeah, God, I had my first surf in five mil the other day and I was like, God, I've not missed this. Jesus. Yeah. Just, uh... Well, you've got to be resilient. I reckon that we're we're brilliant paddlers, British surfers some of the best if we had a duck dive competition we wipe the socks <laughs> off the world paddle up. well there is that yeah paddle paddle <laughs> contests we're good and that that resilience and we as communities through the pandemic we've learned the value of resilience and you know we you got to be at resilient and it is a bit if you have those trips to bali or barbados it's amazing but imagine having that every day and you start to take it for granted British surfers, we definitely don't take anything for granted because it is bitter for a lot of our surfing year. Yeah, well, you, like you say, you got to seek it out, haven't you? You know, like I, my little WhatsApp group, there's, I'm always a bit like, let's just set our expectations to sub-zero and then, and then it'll all be good, won't it? You I know. was reading the other day that water at its most dense is at four degrees and i was thinking god man imagine having those brutal days up in the northeast when it is mm. almost four degrees and water's more dense than when it's frozen at four degrees I know, Jesus. surfing heavy slabs up there sandy Tymouth or gabe davies or one of Sand, sandy kerr gabe davies that crew you know yeah. that's that's core that's really core and yeah. due respect for for those surfers. or like you know the great lakes people yeah. you know all Lake these little Sheboygan. yeah all these little scenes where it's pretty grim but everyone's just just still stoked aren't they just yeah. still getting out there it's definitely softer down in in cornwall than than some of the more harsher kind of uh, kind of conditions that the the welsh surfers will go through in the winter and then the the surfers up in the northeast the scottish surfers and the Irish surfers, I, I, I'm really aware, aware of that. And most of my work, if you Google me, it's I'm off in a pair of board shorts somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I, you know, there's the, most of my home life, I don't mark it. It's, it's there. I'm out there at home surfing. And I actually surf a lot more in the worst conditions because I love it when it's quiet. Yeah. I spend more time when it's terrible in the water because nobody's in, nobody yeah, cares. Yeah. And that's my specialism is... And I, that's not on my Instagram or in my books or in my films. Yeah, yeah. It's the kind of little other glossy moments that the brands want to endorse and support. So yeah. there is this kind of kind of dual identity of, of who you are behind closed doors, which I really love, but who you are in the public arena in your Brilliant Corners films or your Mindfulness and Surfing book where it looks like everything's rosy and great. But yes, there's arguments and there's a terrible bank account and ice cream headaches that's the 80 percent of it and long hours at the editing suite i'm doing kind of you know kind of screen work so yeah it's not all is not all glamour but i wouldn't change it for the world where did your passion for geography come from do you think great question matt the realization that it was the subject that brought together my 
interest in the coastline, that combination of the communities that were there, the oceanography and the weather changes and the rocks. You know, it wanted something that was, why is that rock that color? Why is the beach made of quartz and silica? How come the swell's much better today than yesterday? Why is it low tide? How come that fishing community have been here for thousands of years? And what's that stone circle doing on the cliff? And when I was at school, I had a couple of geography teachers who surfed and seemed to pull together that mix. It was a holistic subject. Yeah. And I had a really inspirational A-level geography teacher called Barry Blamey, who sadly died of a brain tumor. And he was the one who said, you should look at Cambridge or Oxford. And I looked at both and Cambridge resonated and got a place to read geography at Cambridge. And, and it was a really good, and it continues to be a really good type of geography they teach there, which is very holistic with equal balance between the physical geography about geology, meteorology, oceanography, all the scientific elements and the human historical elements about communities, sociology, anthropology, those, that holistic way of doing geography was very much a Cambridge specialism. And uh, I'd really loved um, reading Andy Martin's books and he's a lecturer up in, in French in Cambridge and he was there when I was there, still is there now. And I knew he was there lecturing and that he'd written Walking on Water, a brilliant book in the 90s. I started in 98, but he wrote a couple of um, brilliant newspaper features on me, which were fantastic. And they really nailed it because I did I did have a um, dual identity there because you weren't allowed to be away on the weekends unless your sport was, you know, a, you were doing, you, you, you was right rep celebrated if you were rowing or playing rugby surfing was not you couldn't get a blue for surfing right so i was sneaking off and coming back with a kind of suspicious tan and getting confused about my handshake approach <laughs> with, you know is it the thumb clasp or yeah the, yeah and but i got away with it and then it got to the point where it was people kind of knew that and um andy wrote a couple of nice pieces in the broadsheets at the time that right. really re- hit the nail on the head and i really I appreciated that, that he understood me as a sir. He was a surfer, wrote books on surfing, great journalist. I also knew the Cambridge culture. And um, I look back on the couple of pieces he wrote for the Observer Sport Monthly and the Independent at the time. And, and they they really captured what it was like being a surfer while studying at Cambridge at the time, who didn't want to give up, but was trying to launch a career as a professional surfer whilst studying. And um, there's this, there's a lot more I need to revisit with that. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff um, about that time. Um, that, like, right, skate, using my, being the only person who had a long, longboard skateboard, <laughs> everyone on their bike. But it, there's, there's going to be probably hundreds of surfers now at Oxford and Cambridge, but, in 98 to 201 there was a handful and they were great people many of which i'm still friends with and um i'm grateful that i had the resilience to hang in there because it was very easy to have given up because i got the the oxbow sponsorship that had a fun you know it was this this monthly salary and oxbow ed ed lee was yeah he was on the oxbow team at the time ed lee yeah very nearly got an oxbow tattoo um, not a lot of people know that. And, and Ed, Ed's a great example of someone who's just, you know, he really, 
he's done the hard yards, but he always stood up for his love of action sports. Yeah, he always had a vision. Definitely. And there it is yeah. on Ski Sunday. And, yeah, and yeah. At Grand, and with the BBC, he'll be in China. Might be a media city in Manchester, but they'll be there <laughs> commentating on the BMXing and the and the snowboarding and the action sports and and that is a British action sports pa- specialist, you know, taking his love of something to a place where it has a good voice now, a voice of authenticity and a voice of authority, and that for me is a great example of what we can do as British mm. action sports athletes is use our British edge to get yeah. our voice in that place of of influence in a good way. And, you know, he's probably a good friend of yours, but I, I've always admired what he's achieved. Yeah, no, he's, he did, yeah, I'm, he is a close friend, yeah. Um, he, yeah, that boy always had an angle, for sure. He always had a, a great way of communicating and a great way of communicating his vision. But on back to your point about, you know, reconciling your two identities if you like as a surfer and an academic if that's not uh, you know overstating it um but it strikes me that that might have been a thing because you know like it wasn't for somebody if if you want to be a professional surfer you want to make a career in surfing like that's not a very obvious path is it you know and I imagine again like you said like you hinted at like 20 years ago it was even less obvious really so is that was that something that you kind of struggled with to to kind of reconcile those two paths that you were trying to you were trying to help coexist at the same time if you like yeah it was quite hard and every time i moved away from surfing it would pull me back in but every time i got too close to surfing i needed to get back outside of it and i realized that actually we should celebrate difference and uniqueness individuality and if we can find ways of the crossover between different worlds, that's really exciting. You know, the best artists are the ones who are fusing art, science and music, for example. It's that mixing of things. Uh, I think that's great. You know, we, we, I don't think we need to be totally focused in one area. I think that our surfing becomes stronger by being passionate about something that's not connected to it. Yeah. And I really encourage that with the teaching I do at Falmouth with students is, for them to celebrate their own passions and build bridges with what they're learning and connect their passion with that because those crossovers can lead to new ideas, more sustainable ways of doing things. So in the past, I did struggle to align those different identities. Um, And I still, to a certain extent, do, you know, I do things that are Sam as this and Sam as that, and they're they're quite different. Um, But that's nice. Uh, there's lots of the students at Falmouth who probably have no idea of of uh, some of my other aspects of life, but I don't mind that because in that moment there's a syllabus and I want to be a good teacher and support what they're doing and share some of the knowledge I might have on that topic. And in a completely different environment when you're just out having a surf and, and you see a friend or someone you don't know and uh, you can support them with a you know with a with with a thumbs up or a celebration for the good ride they had that's a different that's a different side to me but it's exactly the same because it's just inside it's that just you know you know love of people of place of movement and you know the the dance of things if you know if there's if there's one thing lacking in surfing for me it's 
the relationship with dance and if I was going to do a new surf event it would go much more in that direction of really good dancing and music and performance you could do a brilliant one at the wave with DJs and music and break dancers and surfers and really try to get surfers who are skilled to really just break the boundaries a bit you know what 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 more can we do you know there's got to be there's 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 got to be some some um new ways of performing on boards that are kind of really refreshing and stuff and that's why when with music you there's always there's always the 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 same sounds but yeah all the new ways of creating music and um more different surfing styles fantastic if you see somebody you're like wow look at that style that's really exciting if they got that different way of doing it and that probably comes from being interested in lots of different stuff yeah yeah i, I would agree with that definitely do you do you you got a lot going on you know and you've you've obviously you almost describe compartmentalizing these different aspects of what you do is that do you recognize that idea yeah yeah but at the same time they kind of they cross over and um i think that discipline to sit through things comes through so if you're going to write a book you've got to be able to sit on your bum for months and just build those bricks you might have had the good experience hide your phone yeah you've got to just charge it out and that's and i get up early and do things on my laptop to catch up with stuff and editing a film you've got to sit there for months on end commentating you've got to sit in a in a booth watching the action for for really long shifts and i have that patience because i because a i enjoy seeing others do these exciting things but b there are there are periods where it is joy and expression and movement and that whether it's having a surf in the morning or evening or having been lucky enough to have made a film and surfed my way through Mauritania and have documented it that you know that I can cope with the long kind of patient periods of working hard to to try to share those stories but I've always been okay with just grinding out the you know that the stuff so I think that helps <laughs> hello <laughs> that's my wife and uh, oh. and dog well, they, let, let her come in I know, no. Well, I've, I've, I've got, I've got a couple. I've got a couple more actually. So we'll just. Well, it's an hour and a half. That went pretty quick, didn't it? Are you, how are you doing for time? Yeah, I don't know what the time is. I'll um, turn the phone off. It is quarter six. Yeah. Um. What was I going to say? Let me just. We were uh, talking about um the resilience of. I can't remember. Yeah. Um. What I was going to. I'll edit all this. Obviously, I'll put a little. Uh, you just gave me a good title, actually. The the, the dance of things, which I quite liked. Nice. That, yeah. That that image yeah um what i was going to say was um so where once this is all lifted and we can travel again and i'm not even going to mention this year and the potential you know where we are now um where's next well it the if i could have kept making new films through the lockdown i would have found ways but the budgets was were not there because things slowed down and the the way the money was getting generated just didn't exist. So I didn't have the money to self fund things, but we, the last one we filmed was in Zanzibar and that was last September. So it wasn't that long ago. I think I would have thrived on the, on making a few films in places that I could have got into and out of safely and, and that communities were, were keen to have their stories shared. But as far as where next, if, 
I can make new Brilliant Corners films. There's so many parts of Africa that I've not yet visited and then the Caribbean and, and Asia. And it, it's actually quite a hot spot, but Angola is really high on the list. But um, I'd really like to go to Mogadishu. Somalia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that every time I see a news report from Mogadishu, it's a really nice beach break in the background. <laughs> and and um, in the process of connecting a few dots with some other East African surfers about that, and there'll come a time where Somalia will be a bit more doable. It's not right now. Yeah. But it's a the opportunity of telling some of the stories of conflict or dealing with post-conflict places through the therapy of surf travel I think could be could be quite healing for a few people on board. So that that interests me. I just watched a brilliant film, actually. I don't know if you've seen it. Let me just look it up. I can't remember what it's called. About Liberia. Um, a surf film. That, yeah, it's that really Damian good. Damien Castera's film. Um, Water Get No Enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really liked it. Brilliant. I've watched it as well. I, I know Damien. He's a really good surfer from Biritz. Just, just struck me when you mentioned... Um, you know, conflict zones and surfing as therapy because that's kind of the theme of that, isn't it? Yeah. You know? But it's yeah. really well done, isn't it? We had a really quite moving experience being among the first groups to do a photo trip to Liberia. So Sliding Liberia is a really good film that was made um, just a week before a trip that I did with John Callahan and Randy Rack and Emiliano Cataldi and um, Fred Doray from Brazil where in 2006, which was post-conflict Liberia, with photo and writing-led. We did a feature for Surf as Path for that and some other magazines. And I did do a Brilliant Corners in Liberia in yeah. 2014. I thought so, yeah. Yeah. And Damien's film is great. In Liberia, the Robertsport community, they've got, a, you know, Raglan-level series of left points. Yeah, waves and, look amazing. Yeah, and, and it's great because... There's lots of strong stories of the role of surfing through conflict, but also the role of surfing as a form of healing. But we have to respect that these places have domestic tourism. People mm. go to the beach on the weekend, and Robertsport is one of the beach towns for Monrovians. It's a three-hour drive with bad roads, but those roads will likely improve. And it's an opportunity for those ocean-savvy young men and women to become lifeguards, yeah. teach surfing to run campsites accommodation providers cook food we love to go to the coast it's been happening for thousands of years around the world and and that's how it's a one of the way we ways we empower our youth is by them becoming stewards of their coastline and and it's their place and they're the managers of it and that's where the model of surfing is dance carnival music can empower surf communities to not think they need to be the next John John Florence, but to recognize they can run their own events mm. and put on their own shows for their domestic market and make a little bit of money from it, have their own surf exhibitions that are about supporting their communities and people engaging with the beauty of wave riding without needing to think they need to travel the world and be the next pro surfer. And that supports the more expressive side of wave riding and that dance element of using your body there's a lovely guy i met in ghana and he 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 was a good dancer and we did some stuff on his drumming dancing group but he used his arms a lot and that would get ironed out by any good coach but i thought it was fantastic yeah that would be considered kind of bad style in a lot of circles wouldn't it but yeah 
but why not loosen it up as we would not criticize a band that sounded refreshing we wouldn't no. go oh you you know you, jimmy hendrix you're playing the guitar the wrong bit, way around mate. bit loose mate yeah exactly <laughs> so 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 that's what i really like to support and I, I want that with anybody who who can be bothered to listening listen to me which is probably not many because i'm not going to entertain in that way that you know your group big crowd pullers will but it's that sense of yeah be different be yourself be open-minded do things differently if you want a longboard in a particular way great you know i'll be the first person to give you a high five for that so where can people um find your work so the books mindfulness and surfing and mindful thoughts for surfers they're online and and um the quattro group ivy press on the south coast leaping hair there's all these subsects yeah subsets subsects that that you can find those with a bit of search engine action and the mindfulness and surfing book is i i really think that's a nice way of kind of tuning into some of my interests with culture communities travel with the engagement with the environment putting ourselves more into the mind of the world and the yeah. wider community and there are some older travel books surfing brilliant corners is one of them and then as far as the filmmaking there's the more recent brilliant corner series is on the world surf league website where they have their links to original content and films it's there free to view yeah and some of the older series are on amazon prime and some other surf video network and some other providers and then um if you're really desperate to get to know me do a sustainable tourism degree at family <laughs> university because <laughs> i'll be teaching you on some of the modules yeah you're and busy man you got a lot going on so it's a bit of it, it's a, it's a juggle but it's a good juggle and probably the biggest inspiration is is the kids you yeah. know it's great you know i i i, I was really really stoked that my dad put the hours into me at the beach and there's yeah. nothing like it when you're when you if you're lucky enough to have surfed with your children or your parents when you're small and you look up and you see your parent there and they saw it it happened and you know i know that feeling i haven't forgot it and i want to make sure that the kids you know i'm there for them with that with those kind of uh, you know water-based experiences and it's good because I've just managed to keep them positive about it in the way that we can go down in the most bitter winter day and put on wet wetsuits and still enjoy it. Yeah. So I didn't intimidate them or put them <laughs> off. And I think that's about building their self-confidence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, that was great. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been yeah. a pleasure. No, it's great. So there you go. That was me and Sam, and I hope you enjoyed it. What a thoughtful, interesting, and considered chape. I particularly enjoyed the part of the conversation where he essentially planted his flag in the ground in an appeal to UK surfing to get our shit together, which in many ways sounded a little bit like a manifesto, you know, an on the stump speech in which Sam was kind of putting himself forward to show the leadership that is so clearly required. I mean, at the very least, Sam outlined a vision there. Um, you might agree with it. You might disagree with it. You might disagree with me. Plenty of people do. My views on surfing, um, being the uh, ingenue that I am, 
But I'd love to hear what you think about that. Let me know by commenting on the episode post over at Instagram at We Look Sideways or drop me a line at podcast at wearelookingsideways.com. Anyway, I'll be looking forward to exploring some new ideas in 2022, notably Looking Sideways Live, the Looking Sideways Media Apprentice thing I've been chatting about for a while now. I've also got episode 200 looming. I've got quite an interesting idea about that. Um, So, yeah. We'll see where it all leads, eh? As myself and Owen discussed in our episode 150B conversation, you just sometimes do need to generate a lot of ideas to see which ones stick. So, uh, yeah, on which reflective note, I'm going to say my usual nice one.